Welcome to Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you'll hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources. In this episode, Dr. David Maguire, who's a university reader in Scotland, discusses the New Zealand Prime Minister's leadership traits and emergency planning skills that led to the country's success in almost eliminating COVID-19. Welcome, David. Thanks, Marilene. It's great to be with you today. Dr. David Maguire is a reader in human resource development at Glasgow Caledonian University. His research interests lie in the areas of HRD, leadership, and diversity. He's originally from the west of Ireland, but he's worked in Scottish universities for the past 15 years. And Dr. David uh, Maguire has asked that I mention that during the pandemic lockdown uh, in Scotland, he's enjoyed retaking up running and long walks and watching all the Star Wars movies with his eight-year-old daughter. It certainly sounds like a fun enterprise. Well, enterprise may not be the best word here since uh, that's from Star Trek, right? You recently published a research article on the topic of leadership traits and emergency planning. And you make reference in your article to the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's speeches. So can you tell us what led you to write this research article? I suppose I've been interested in, in leadership and leadership speeches for the last number of years. Um, I, I did a paper many years ago on Martin Luther King Jr. and then followed it up with a paper on, on Obama. And I suppose if I, I take the Obama paper, the kind of origin for that paper was, you know, how does a skinny kid with a funny name, as, as Obama famously described himself, you know, a, a first-term African-American senator go on to defeat Hillary Clinton uh, to get the nomination and then defeat John McCain, who had, I think it was 35 years in the Senate at that stage, to achieve the, the presidency or, or to become president of the United States. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those really interesting stories of how is this relative unknown individual how does he go from an obscurity is 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 too too fine a point but how does he go from this relative newness or relative um inexperience to becoming the u.s president and one of the things i did was um for that paper i analyzed 160 obama speeches and compared them to 106 speeches um, made by John McCain. And what that did was it really showed me that the power of speech imagery and speeches that can really influence people and shape how people act, either, either positively or negatively. My favorite Obama speech, and I know we're not here to talk about Obama, but let me digress for a second. My favorite Obama speech, which I'd encourage all of you to go and have a look at, is the one where he talks about one voice can change a room. And, you know, if it can change a room, it can change a, a city. If it can change a city, it can change a state. If it can change a state, it can change the world. And that, to me, highlights the power that rhetoric can have in influencing and, and shaping our actions and behaviors. 
So that was sort of the context. And, and you know, move forward or fast forward a couple of years to, to March of last year, and we'd gone into lockdown. And I became aware in, in late February or early March of some of the things Jacinta Ardern was doing in terms of how she was managing the lockdown in New Zealand. Now, Ardern had been on my radar for, for a little while, but I started to become much more interested in her in the early stages of lockdown, particularly in terms of how she was communicating to the, the New Zealand population, how she, the sort of actions she was taking, but also the way in which she was putting her messages across. And, you know, that goes back to, you know, her response to the Christchurch terrorist attack a, a few years ago, you know, where she made a point of not mentioning the terrorist name after the attack and has never mentioned the terrorist name because she didn't want to give this person any infamy because of what they'd done. In the aftermath of the, the attack, she condemned racism in all its forms. And she went about changing the gun laws in New Zealand. And she got a huge amount of credit for, for doing that and for really grasping the challenge and the leadership challenge before her. And, you know, as I say, in the early stages of lockdown, I became aware of particularly some of her Facebook videos. And I started to get interested in seeing, well, how are New Zealand handling the pandemic? What are they doing? And, and how is she as a leader responding to the pandemic? So what are some of the effects of her leadership as it pertains to COVID-19? Well, I think in terms of COVID-19, it's really interesting what New Zealand have done. Let me start with the conclusion. And, and, and we're you know early January 2021, just to put that in context. But let's start with a conclusion. Up to now in the pandemic, uh, up to today, New Zealand have had 25 deaths in total. They've had no second wave. And the last recorded death in New Zealand was on the 15th of September. And I know it's a, a horrible thing to talk about deaths and, 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 and look at, look at things in, in that very stark statistical context. But even still, that tells you something about the approach that New Zealand have taken to the pandemic and how effective that has been. So in terms of New Zealand and the approach Ardern took was, first of all, an approach based upon daily briefings. You know, every day standing up in, in front of the media, um, both print and broadcast media, and being very clear on where the country was at the particular stage in time, the number of people in hospital, the number of deaths, and the approach that was being taken. And, and they very much took an, a, an approach of going hard and going early. At that stage in, in early March, they had looked at Italy, they'd seen how the virus had taken hold in Italy, and they made a decision saying, we do not want to be Italy. So we're going to go hard, we're going to go early, we're going to follow the science. And they started locking down. They started closing off the airports and banning cruise ships for, at that, the early stages, 14 weeks. They started ramping up their testing system. They started increasing their public health messaging. And they started, and Ardern in particular, started ramping up the communication 
making the public aware of the challenge and preparing the public for what was coming ahead, uh, educating the public. And then as as things progressed, communicating and, and, and keeping the public encouraged and motivated to keep following the message and keep following at the guidance that was being issued. I mean, one of the things she did uh, quite famously is she very early on, her and her senior ministers took a 20% pay cut for a period of six months. And that was an attempt to do two things. One was to show social solidarity with people who had lost their jobs and you know who were unemployed because of the pandemic and, and secondly it was a, it was a sign of leadership it, it was a, a way of her saying i am feeling the pain and i in some ways want to feel the pain with you because we need to go through this together and and we need to be together with each other so i think she really galvanized and she called it her team of 5 million she brought the, the New Zealand public together, uh, galvanise them in a in a spirit of togetherness and community that they were going to to defeat the virus, and as I said, the the outcomes have shown that they've been very successful in doing that. And you know, in the past, uh, was about a couple of months ago, she won a, a landslide re-election to the New Zealand Parliament. So uh, I think she's been pretty, and, and it's horrible to say she's been pretty successful in the pandemic because the pandemic, you know, has had such devastating consequences for everyone. But I think there's merit in looking at the approach that she has adopted and, and that approach has been highly effective in, in New Zealand. Well, certainly her re-election is proof uh, it's yeah. some, some kind of measurement of effectiveness, isn't it? David, in your research, were you able to isolate the effectiveness of her social media presence compared to the speeches she made on television? Yeah, well, one of the things that, that I had been conscious of very early on in the pandemic, and, and it really got me interested in, in, in looking at, at her speeches, was the Facebook Live broadcast that she was doing. And in the Facebook Live broadcast, she would come on um, either early early in the morning or late in the evening. She'd often be at home. She'd be dressed quite casually, perhaps in a, in a hoodie or, or just a sweater. And she would kind of talk directly almost to the camera and, and explain things in a very casual and informal way. And when I use the word casual, I don't mean lighthearted. I, I mean, in a way that that was relatable in, a, in not using jargon, not using highly complex terms. She was able to break down key messages in a simple way that people could, could understand. And, and one of the things that struck me about those Facebook Live broadcasts is how different they were to the daily briefings. You know, the daily briefings were politicians, and we have daily briefings in Scotland and in other countries as well. Often they're very formal events where you have a, a politician and a director of public health or, or a chief medical officer standing in front of a podium uh, and delivering a, a speech or a key message. And that is very a very formal, almost stilted type of communication. And, you know, people will then, journalists or maybe members of the public might ask questions. But the Facebook Lives broadcasts were very, very different in that, you know, it was much more 
relaxed. You had a, a even a, a little bit of a jilty camera going on at times, and you know she was felt like it was personal. It felt like it was one to one. It felt like you know it was direct communication. But at the same time, there was a huge amount of of detail to what she was saying. She was very persuasive in in the messages that that she was putting across and she was able to get those across so clearly but also it, it came across as very authentic she was there in, in in a sweater she talked about what she'd been doing that day she talked about you know her her husband and child and 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 you got to almost bond with her as a leader and it came across that the, the social media and Facebook live broadcasts, I think, were really, really effective in getting those public health messages across, yeah, even perhaps even more so than the formal briefings. And I suspect, um, given that I, I know, Marilyn, you're in, in the United States, I suspect you'll see that type of a response under under the new presidency. I think you'll see some fireside chats in, in the coming weeks. Now, I may be proven wrong after the t- 21st of January, but I suspect you'll see that the Biden presidency adopting some of these fireside chats and pieces to camera where it's a way of getting through to people who are turned off by the formal podium broadcast uh, type events. I hope you're right. Uh, David, in your article, in your research article, you mentioned the importance of ethics of care. Can you tell our listener what it means for HR professionals, but also for employees? Sure. So what is, what is ethics of care? Ethics of care is really a, about a genuine concern that an employer or HR people have for the good of others. And it's about being there for them. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a very simple concept. We, we talk about ethics of care as if it's something, you know, a, a highly complex term, but it's actually a very, very simple concept to get your head around. Ethics care is about being genuinely there for someone, taking an interest in someone, taking an interest in in their welfare. I think for a number of years, we've seen organizations pursuing, you know, cost effectiveness strategies and resource maximization strategies without really thinking through or looking at the, the consequences that some of those strategies have for individual employees. So an, an ethics of care approach is, is, is really around, as an employer, being a good employer and, and taking an interest in, a genuine interest in your staff and looking at, well, how can we make the lives of our staff just that little bit better? What are the simple things that we can do to, to show that we care, because that, I suspect, is going to make a huge difference to the productivity of staff, but also to the feeling that staff have that, that they're valued by the organization. And if they're valued, they're going to feel more comfortable in the organization, they're going to be more effective, more productive, and they're going to stay longer in the organization. I suppose Part of why I was interested in the ethics of care was I became conscious during the, the pandemic 
of this concept of, you know, in the United States, I think you call them essential workers. And in the UK, we call them key workers. And, you know, key workers or essential workers were, you know, nurses and doctors and store assistants and delivery drivers and educators and cleaners. What we're saying when we're labeling them key workers or essential workers is that these people are critical to the functioning of our economy. And to me, there was a little bit of a dichotomy there because we were saying these people are essential to the functioning of our economy, yet they're some of the lowest paid people in the economy. And how is that fair? As a university professor, I, during the pandemic, have been highly privileged to have led quite a sheltered existence. I have done my work from my spare bedroom haven't felt the need to to go out and overly expose myself during the pandemic. Yet you have large numbers of workers who are in this essential or key worker category who are lowly paid and yet at the highest risk of contracting COVID and becoming quite ill and, and sadly a lot of them dying. How is that fair to say these are essential workers and yet they're the lowest paid in our economy? So an ethics of care approach sort of exposes um, some of these dichotomies and some of these tensions and said, well, how can we address the imbalance here? How can we create a fairer economy, uh, an economy that values the skills of essential workers, an economy that values these groups of people who really are putting their lives on the line to, to keep the rest of us both alive and, and healthy. So I suppose from a HR point of view, we need to think about how can we be present for all employees and show an ethic of care and show an interest. And an ethic of care is what I would say is proximal and contextual. In other words, an ethic of care, we need to be there and understand and be close to employees and develop close relationships to employees in order to understand what's going on. And we also need to treat employees as an individual because each employee will have a set of circumstances that are, is unique to them and will need HR solutions that work for them. So the needs of a single parent will be different to the needs of a, of a single person or, or a married couple or whatever it is, that it, each individual will have a, a unique family or home context that if we're trying to be good employers, we need to move away from a one-size-fits-all and look at a, a package of HR measures that suit individual needs and individual contexts. Thank you, David. In closing, can you think of one thought or an idea about how leaders, perhaps HR leaders, may tackle emergency planning, such as a pandemic, uh, in their organizations? I think I'd probably say in terms of, of one idea, it's it's that one I've just talked about is how can you as an employer or you as a HR leader be there for your employees? How can you discharge your duty of care to your employees? How can you provide a safe 
place of work, a safe system of work? How can you lessen the pressure that some employees are under? And again, these don't have to be huge, grand, expensive initiatives. They can be as simple as a phone call, checking in on employees, showing employees you have their back, showing employees that you're interested in them as an individual and making the time to do that, making the time to do that as an employer, making the time to do that as a team leader, that your employees really want to work for you as an employer, really know that they are valued by you as an employer. And I think, I I hope that what the pandemic has done with all the devastation that the pandemic has brought, I hope it, it has reinforced certain messages to all of us about the importance of relationships and that HR is, is, should be not based on cost effectiveness or, 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 or productivity or whatever, but HR is around relationships. How can we build stronger relationships with our employees, with our customers, and build a community? Because that's what organizations are. Organizations are effectively communities of individuals who come together for a particular purpose. And the effectiveness of those communities lies in the relationships that exist within those communities. So how can we build stronger relationships? How can employers show to their employees that that they really care, that they're valued, that, that employees are valued? within the organization. So I, th- I think that's the, the key message that, that I'd, I'd like to, to leave you with is, is to ask people to think about that and think about the, the ethic of care that they can show to employees. Yes, it comes back to the, the word itself, right? Employees are resources, they are, but they are human resources. Yeah. And, and since you're a Star Wars fan, which character best embodies effective leadership according to you? Oh, good question. Um, I think my daughter, Amy, who's eight, would never forgive me if I didn't say Princess Leah, because I think Princess Leah showed her leadership skills in, in often a quiet, assured, dignified way, and that she was able to accomplish huge things by taking that approach. It's, it's not, leadership is not about being the bull in the china shop. Leadership is, is about bringing employees or followers with you on a journey, showing that you care, showing that you're interested, and helping make that journey as pain-free and as satisfying as it can be. I'm excited it's a woman. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing your insights with us, uh, David, about leadership, about emergency planning, New Zealand's Prime Minister's success in almost eliminated COVID-19 cases, and also the importance of ethics of care. Thank you, David. Great. Thanks, Marilene. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you will hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources.